Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter in my Bible, and I just really need to ask everybody to please get a Bible out or be looking over next to somebody who's got a Bible out. Let's all be looking together in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be primarily going to be here for the majority of the first part of the lesson. And it's just really important that you be looking in the Scriptures this morning and following along with me in the Word of God. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I will just quickly echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. Have a number of guests with us and we very much appreciate uh, your presence here today. You're an encouragement to us and it is indeed a blessing for us to be able to be uh, indoors and away from all of the heat of the outside. We can be in a cool and comfortable environment, hopefully, that we can focus our minds on worshiping God and encouraging one another here upon the first day of the week. I want to go ahead and give you just a spoiler for what's about to happen during the course of the next 35 minutes or so. And that is that you are going to hear a sermon on what is arguably one of the most unpleasant chapters in all of the New Testament. Our Wednesday night auditorium class has been studying in 1 Corinthians for the past few months. And when we got to chapter 5 recently, we had some difficult, yet I think some very profitable discussions about what is commonly referred to there as church discipline. In fact, in my Sunday morning class with the young men, we're studying on the subject of church discipline. And just a couple of summers ago, I preached an entire sermon on the subject of church discipline, and we spent extensive time in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All that is to say that this morning I am going to revisit this chapter, albeit from a slightly different angle. And while I assure you once again that it is not going to be pleasant for us, I do believe that it is going to be needful for us we think about some very important ideas that pertain to our relationships in the body of Christ. Read with me then, please, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. There the apostle says to the church at Corinth, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you, Corinthians, you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Drop down now to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate or keep company with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And that wasn't very enjoyable reading, was it? I don't know anybody who says, oh, favorite chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. I think I'm going to get that crocheted on a quilt and hang that up in my home somewhere. No, nobody feels that way. When we read this chapter and we're thinking about whether it's the Corinthian church and what they were going through, 
Or whether we're thinking about a church that we've known of and been a part of, maybe this congregation, or maybe a congregation from our past, or a congregation that we know of from afar, these are painful instructions that are given to us by the Word of God that gives local congregations some instructions in how to deal with Christians who are involved in flagrant and unrepentant sin. When a person is openly, blatantly, flagrantly not walking faithfully with Jesus, and when that person is well, despite all of our admonitions and our encouragement and our words and our prayers, that person is determined to continue in their sin, in an unrepentant state, then the Apostle Paul says, that the church then has an obligation to do something about that. In fact, in the verses that we just read, did you notice? Paul says there are several somethings that we need to be doing. For example, verse 2. He says you need to be removing that person from among you. Verse 5. He says you need to deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 9. He says do not keep company with that person. Verse 11, do not even eat with such a one. Verse 12, you are to judge that individual's behavior. And then verse 13, it all comes full circle. You are to purge that evil person from among you. Those are hard and difficult steps. But the Bible says they must be taken. In fact, did you notice in verse 3 that Paul says, I don't even go to church there. But I have already pronounced judgment on that brother. My relationship with him has changed. And your relationship with him needs to change as well. Because, verse 5, because we're trying to save this guy. That's the point in all this. That is the primary objective and motivation here. When we talk about church discipline, or we talk about withdrawal, or we talk about disfellowship, or whatever else you want to call it, the main reason, the number one reason that we do that is because the Bible says these measures are designed to save a soul. So it doesn't really matter whether we like that, or whether we care for that, or whether we even agree with that. Paul says this is what God's people must do in order to save a brother or a sister who is living in sin and has been held captive by the devil. Now, as soon as I say all of that, and as soon as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, somebody is liable to say, well, man, that's just so hard, it's so painful, and well, what if it doesn't work? You know, what if we do all of that? Go through all of those steps. Go through all of this whole painful process here. What if we do all of that, and it just ends up pushing that person further away? What if it causes that brother or sister to just go further and further away from us? They just don't ever want to have anything to do with us again, and they never, ever repent. Well, first of all, I want to say about that, that sometimes it does work. And sometimes people do repent. For proof of that, read the second Corinthian letter and read chapter 2. Because this guy being discussed here in 1 Corinthians 5, he does come back and he does repent. And that says to me that God's plan and God's way... It works. He knows what he's talking about. He designed all of this. Secondly, though, sometimes it doesn't work. And the reason sometimes it doesn't work is because we mess it up. We sometimes undermine the whole process through maybe a lack of consistency. Or maybe we undermine the process because we wait 20 or 30 years before we ever do anything and now it's really too late to do anything. Or maybe we don't do that with tact 
and care and compassion and love. In all of those instances, it's not that God's way doesn't work, no. It's just that there was poor execution on our part. But I will say thirdly, that there are occasions where a church does do it God's way. And we follow every single step. We take Matthew 18 into account. 2 Thessalonians 3, this passage in 1 Corinthians 5. We do it with the right heart, we do it with the right spirit and the right attitude, and still, that brother or that sister, they leave the faith, and they never, ever come back. That is a sad reality, but it does happen. And so the question is, if we know that that is a possibility, then why would we do this? If we know it's possible that that person may leave and never, ever come back, why would we follow through with all of this stuff? Maybe someone would be convinced that, well, maybe we just need to try another way. Maybe there's another method here. Maybe instead of separating ourselves from that person, what we need to do is, well, we just need to keep them close. We need to keep them as close and tight as we possibly can to them. Or, you know, maybe instead of changing and modifying the relationship with them, maybe what we need to do is, we just need to kind of keep everything the same. Kind of keep things the way that they always were, and that way we don't ruffle any feathers there. Well, it is in those moments when we have those kinds of thoughts, That is the moment that makes this morning's lesson so vitally important. Because I want you to know this morning that there is actually a second reason for why we take these kinds of measures with a wayward brother or a wayward sister. Yes, number one, we are trying to save a soul. But did you know that secondly, we are also trying to protect the saved. We are trying to protect the saved from being leavened. Leaven. Leaven is going to be a key and critical word this morning. Would you look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Would you notice those verses in the middle of the chapter? Those are the verses I skipped over a moment ago, and purposely so. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6. There Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you see? 1 Corinthians 5 is not just about helping that person get right with God. It is also, secondly, about how God protects the faithful from the imminent danger of even the smallest hint, the smallest trace, even the smallest tiny amount of undetected or unaddressed leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, let's take maybe a little bit closer look at those verses there. Throughout my life, we've spent a lot of time talking about verses 1 through 5 and verses 9 through 13 and how to execute that. And I've preached on those things an awful lot. But I must confess to you that prior to today, I've not given nearly enough attention to verses 6, 7, and 8 in the application of those verses. What's going on here in these verses that really helps us to understand what's going on? Well, let me first of all draw your attention to that beginning statement where Paul says that you're boasting is not good. He's saying that to the Corinthians. Hey, Corinthians, your boasting is not good here. He actually mentioned that boasting and arrogance sort of thing back in verse 2 as well. And I've got to tell you, I've always kind of struggled with knowing what exactly that was. What was the arrogance here? 
What was the pride and the, the, the boasting all about? What exactly were they boasting about? I used to think that maybe they were boasting about the fact that, oh, we've got such a diverse membership. Hey, look at us. We're the church that will welcome people who are living in sexual immorality. See that a lot in the religious world today. Hey, we're so accepting and tolerant of anybody and everybody. You can come in here and we'll just make you a part of this family. And I thought about, well, maybe there's some of that going on here. Then I thought maybe Paul was condemning the Corinthians for their, their intellectual arrogance. When you study the first four chapters of Corinthians, you find out that the Corinthians were really wrapped up in themselves, in the human philosophies and wisdom of the day, just so caught up in their own thinking that, well, they just didn't really have the time to notice this brother who was drowning in sin. And maybe there's some of that going on. But then I noticed this mention here in verse 6 of boasting once again. And now I am convinced that it's something else entirely. I believe that the Corinthians thought that they knew what was the best way to help this brother. We know how we can rehabilitate this brother. In fact, we maybe even know a better way than the Lord knows how to. I think if you had asked the Corinthians, Hey, Corinthians, don't you have a sexually immoral man in your number? Now, I'm not just talking about any kind of sexual immorality, a certain kind of sexual immorality. I think the Corinthians would have said, oh yeah, we do. But you don't understand. We know what we're doing here. We know how to help this brother out. We're taking the closeness route with him. We're keeping him close to the best here. We're not all about putting separation between us, putting space between us. No, no, no. We're going to keep him close. We're just going to love on him a whole lot. We're going to keep him involved. We're going to keep calling on him to lead in prayers in the public assembly. Keep doing things with him socially and going out to eat with him. Just kind of keep everything the same. We've got this well under control. What's Paul say to that? Paul says, your boasting is not good. You've come up with this whole keep him close methodology And you have completely forgotten that it's not just about saving that brother. No, it's also about protecting everybody else in the congregation from the influence, the leaven of his sin. And I think that point is made especially clear when Paul asks the next question, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I took two semesters of baking at Berea College, and so I'm very much a professional on leaven here. Actually, that's not true. I just Googled it last night. But what I learned from my extensive Googling is that leaven, yeast might be the term we're more familiar with, Leaven is just really, really small. I've got it covered up there, but that's what that picture is in the little, the little spoon, the little dish there in the background. Just a teeny, tiny ingredient. In some cases, you can't even really even hardly see it. But when you put just a small amount of that into a lump of dough, it ends up interacting with the sugars and the other chemicals in that dough. And it ends up releasing carbon dioxide which then changes the whole chemical composition of that dough, which of course is what causes it to rise, to expand, and to grow. Ladies, those of you that bake bread, you know all about all of this stuff. Now, the inclination is to say, when we think about the size of leaven in comparison to the size of the dough, is to say, well, there's so much more dough than there is leaven. I mean, come on, that little bit of leaven, it's not really going to affect that big giant lump of dough. The dough is just going to kind of overpower whatever little bit of influence the leaven might have. Well, that is why Paul asked this question. 
Do you not know? I mean, he's literally asking it. Don't you know that a little leaven ends up leavening that whole lump of dough? Don't you know that? All it takes is just a little amount, just the slightest amount. And spiritually speaking, that is all that it takes. It takes just the slightest amount of accepted, tolerated sin to begin that leavening process. To where it ends up affecting, it ends up changing the whole lump of dough, a.k.a. in this case, the whole church. Paul says it's dangerous. And what Paul says you need to do is you need to clean it out. You know, that list of instructions that we had on the right side of the screen a moment ago that Paul gives there in the first five verses and then verses 9 through 13, Paul says you need to do that stuff because you need to get that man away from your brethren. Furthermore, you need to get that man and his influence away from your children. Think about who's the most impressionable and who is the most tender of our number. It'll be our kids. you got to get him out. Get him away from there. Can't have that. Because while you think in your mind your boasting is telling you that all a bunch of good people are just going to crowd and smother this guy, you need to realize that you're not changing him. No, you need to realize that actually in a small and insidious and sinister way, he's changing you. What we need to see here is that this, this is God's protection for us. It is God's protection for our children. It is God's protection for those who might be immature and weak in the faith. When we just tolerate and accept blatant, flagrant, unrepentant sin, somebody who's just openly living and flaunting that, what that does is that sends a message to others. And I can't help but keep thinking about, that sends a message to our kids. That you know what, hey, there's just a certain level of sin that we're willing to accept and tolerate. And if just hearing me say that, if there's something that just sounds wrong about that statement, it's because it is. God's people need to be sending a different statement. And so Paul says you're going to need to clean out that old leaven because we are called to be unleavened. When we became Christians, we made a really strong and important commitment. Do you know what that commitment was? It was the commitment that said, sin, it has to go. That's what repentance is. That's what we decided when we were buried with Christ in baptism. We decided sin has to go out the window. Got to put that away. I'm a Christian now. I am a new creation. I have died to sin and I did that so that I can live new in Christ Jesus. And while yes, it is absolutely true that Christians do still sin from time to time, Now, now it's out of character. Now sin no longer defines who I am. Sin no longer dominates and and, and overtakes me in my life. And so now in my life, every time that leaven pops up, and there is, there's moments in my life where that leaven pops up, I'm going to get it out. I work to push it out. Get it out of me, this lump of dough, because I certainly don't want it to end up affecting the greater lump of dough here. I'm going to take every measure to eradicate it and get it out. It can't be there. It's just too dangerous. And I think we understand that on an individual level, don't we? I've got sin in my life. I need to get that out. Can't have that in there. It's going to destroy me. If you let a little sin remain, what's going to happen? It's going to fester. And it's going to grow. And it's going to multiply. And congregationally, it really works the same way. Unchecked sin within the body of Christ. It has a way of contaminating the whole lump of dough. 
All these people that Christ has washed and cleansed and forgiven, all these people that Jesus has done all this work to make us unleavened, they are now being infected by that little bit of leaven that I have tolerated or that I have brought into the midst. And since I mentioned Jesus just a moment ago, let's just go ahead and bring Jesus to the discussion because that's the next thing that Paul points out. Paul says that the Corinthians, verse 7, that Christ, He is our Passover lamb. He serves our sacrifice. You know, if you were a Jew, the Passover meal was mighty important to you. And part of that Passover meal was the eating of unleavened bread. That unleavened bread represented the absence of leaven, or in another sense, it represented purity, cleanness. Well, how exactly were you able to be able to partake of that meal? You know, not just everybody could eat the Passover meal. How are you able to partake of that Passover meal? Well, you're able to partake of that Passover meal whenever a lamb is slain. And the blood of that lamb was put over the doorpost of your family's house. And you did all of that so that you and your family could not just partake of that meal, but that you and your family could be right with God as you partook of it. So you then eat that unleavened bread. Just like in a very similar way, we're going to eat of this unleavened bread here in just a few moments. And you're going to do that to remember that sacrifice. And what all of that says to me is that the next time that I or you or anyone else feels like, well, what we need to do is we need to just kind of tolerate and put up with brother so-and-so or put up with sister so-and-so and just kind of keep them close to us. This person who has abandoned Jesus, they're just not even trying to live faithfully anymore. And we're just going to kind of overlook their sin and we're going to accept them around our family or around our church. I want you to remember that Jesus Christ died to get that out. Jesus died to remove that sin from our lives and to remove it from our midst. The Lamb died so that we could be cleansed and be shed of that leaven and for us to just willfully invite that back in. It is, in essence, to drive the nails right back into the Savior's hands. Read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 to find that out. We have to remember that Christ is our Passover Lamb. And in verse 8, Paul says, that's something that we're going to celebrate. And when he talks here about this feast and celebrating of this feast, I don't think he just means the Lord's Supper. I think the Lord's Supper would certainly be included. But I think he's talking about just every day. Just in our lives as Christians, we celebrate the feast and we celebrate what Jesus, the Passover Lamb, has done for us. That in every day and in every possible way, we celebrate Christ, what He's done for us. Now the question is, are we going to celebrate that with the leaven of malice and wickedness? Somebody says, oh, I'll tell you what, the way I'm going to celebrate and honor Christ today is just go out and do a bunch of sin. Does that work? Of course that doesn't work. Paul says if you're going to celebrate the feast, you're going to have to do that with the leaven of sincerity and truth. Unleavened bread in this particular case. And listen, i got to tell you, I have decided that I am going to celebrate Christ. Not just on the first day of the week when we partake of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to celebrate Christ all the time. I'm going to celebrate Him in my home. I'm going to celebrate Him with my physical family. I'm going to celebrate Christ in the church when we worship with my spiritual family. And I'm going to tell you, you and anybody else, you are more than welcome to come and join us in doing the exact same thing. But I will tell you, if you're not interested in doing that with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth, 
then you are not welcome in this fellowship. Because we cannot celebrate what is openly and blatantly known as the leaven of sin and evil and wickedness. You just can't celebrate that. And so over and over and over again, Paul warns that a little leaven can have a huge effect on the whole lump of dough. And as hard as it is, we need to acknowledge that fact and we need to go to lengths to protect the body accordingly. And so somebody says, okay, Josh, it's one thing to stand up and to talk about the influence of a little leaven on the church, but how exactly does that manifest itself? In what way? Well, let me be more specific. Let me share with you in the final couple minutes we have. Let me share with you three ways that the whole lump is affected Whenever we fail to do the things that 1 Corinthians 5 says, when we fail to put some separation and some space between us and a brother or a sister who is unfaithful to the Lord. First and foremost, you need to recognize that there is the leaven, the leaven of association. The New Testament regularly talks about fellowship. I think about in 1 John chapter 1, there's like three or four times just right there at the beginning of that chapter that the Bible talks about the fellowship that believers have in and through Christ Jesus. That we share together. We are participating in activities together. We are there for each other. We are able to lean upon one another. In fact, we trust each other. There is a strong association that we have with one another in the body of Christ. But if someone has decided to abandon the way of Jesus, they are a now a dangerous part of our association together. They are in fact now a threat to that association, that fellowship. Since we're here in Corinthians, would you just jump over to chapter 15? In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this is a verse that we probably know very well and we teach it to our young people at a very young age. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is verse 33. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, I want you to notice that this verse does not simply say bad company ruins good morals. It does say that, but that's not the entirety of the verse. How's the verse begin? 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. What is the deceiving? What is the deception Paul's talking about here? I believe the deception here is the same deception that was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That you guys down there in Corinth, you are arrogantly and you are boastfully saying that you can keep that guy around, you can keep him close, you can be around him all the time and act like everything's okay and not act like anything has changed at all. And you can act like that and think that's not going to really have an effect. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to damage anything. It's not going to cause any problems. And as you're thinking all of those kinds of boastful thoughts, you're not thinking about the fact about how that guy's presence among us, it's corrupting the guy who's sitting right behind him in the pew who is thinking about committing the very same sin. And you're not thinking about how his presence among us, it's affecting those teenagers who are looking for and thinking for and trying to find an excuse to be involved in the very same kind of sins that he was. You're not thinking about that. You're not thinking about any of that. You are deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now obviously, we can't just leave the world. We can't just leave and abandon everybody in the whole world. We can't totally insulate ourselves from the sin and wickedness that pervades our society. Paul even addressed that back in chapter 5. But when you're talking about this fellowship, 
When you're talking about people who are here in our sphere of influence, when you're talking about people here that our children are looking at, and they are observing, and they're learning from, and they are emulating their behavior, you better believe I'm going to do everything I can to have some control over that. That I am not going to allow that association to be corrupted with leaven. Associations are powerful things. Look in 1 Corinthians 8. Just stay here in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8, we actually just studied this a couple of weeks ago in the auditorium class, about the eating of meat offered to an idol. And notice what Paul says about that, the effect that that can have. In 1 Corinthians 8, this is verse 10. Paul says, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not also be encouraged to do the same thing if his conscience is weak to eat food that is offered to idols? You see there how Paul just says that Christians, Christians just trust other Christians. It's just kind of part of our nature with one another. And if a less mature Christian sees you doing something that they probably shouldn't be doing, or maybe they just have knowledge of the fact that you've been engaged in some activity that they know they shouldn't be involved in, well, Paul says there is a strong likelihood that by them knowing and seeing you do that, they're going to be encouraged to do it. And why? Because you're doing it. And so what that means practically is if you have lazy attendance habits, or if you go around telling dirty jokes in your life, or if you have lukewarm faith, guess what? Somebody here is probably looking. Someone impressionable here is looking, and there's a high likelihood that they are being leavened by their association with you. They're looking at you and saying, well, if brother so-and-so can do it, if sister so-and-so is doing that, well, then it must be okay. Parents, can, can I just say right here? This ought to hit us. And it ought to make more sense to us than maybe anybody else in this room. It's taken me a few years to realize this, having a child of my own. But I have learned that Hattie, she trusts the people that Tiffany and I associate with. The people that we keep company with, Hattie trusts those people. The people who especially make up this local family. And why? Well, because we're in each other's homes often. We go out and do things together. We sit at the same table and we eat together and we share memories with one another. She trusts that the people who comprise this spiritual family, that these are good people. That these are people she can model herself after. These are people who are worthy of imitation. She trusts these people. She sees the fact that Tiffany and I, we're associating with these people. And so she in turn, she trusts that their influence is pure and it's good and it's right. And that is absolutely the way that it ought to be. That is the ideal. But when a so-called brother or when a so-called sister is carrying on in flagrant, unrepentant sin, then a separation must occur. Because that association has been corrupted by leaven. And that's a danger not just for our kids, that's a danger for all of us. We cannot allow the leaven of association to cause problems and cause discrepancies within this body. Just like secondly, we cannot allow the body to be affected by the leaven of doctrine. Specifically here, the leaven of bad and false doctrine. You know, I have always been just kind of baffled by the complete 180 degree turn that often occurs whenever someone chooses to stop walking with Jesus 
And they choose to leave the Lord's people. And they then begin the process of rebelling against the very truth that they once stood for and that they once lived for. Because suddenly this church that I once loved so much and I stood for and was willing to go in battle with and stand up for and to fight with, now, well now those people down there, they're just all a bunch of legalists. They're all just so narrow-minded in how they think about the Bible. Or you know, suddenly all of those New Testament teachings about fill in the blank, whatever doctrine you want to put, the doctrine of marriage and divorce and remarriage, suddenly that doctrine that I once, I once defended that, and I knew exactly what the Bible said about that. And I debated folks about that. Suddenly now, well, I'm not so sure about it now. Or actually, suddenly now, I think the exact opposite of that. It seems that oftentimes you hear people talk that are in these situations and there's often just almost a sourness in their voice. There's a sourness by those who chose to leave faithful service to Jesus because now they feel indicted by the very word that they are railing against. I remember once talking with a brother who at one time, I believe, was just one of the most ardent students of the Bible. He was one of the most gifted messengers of the Word of God. But who decided at some point along the way, he decided to forsake the truth. And I remember in talking with him, and I have heard him in conversations with him. I have heard him since that time, I have heard him say some of the dumbest things that you can ever imagine a former preacher of the gospel ever saying with their mouths. I mean some of the most straw man kind of arguments that once upon a time, he would have shut that down. He's talking with somebody about that very thing. He would have shut them down immediately, but now he's saying those very same kinds of foolish things. But you know what? That's the way it works. Once you decide that you're not going to do things God's way anymore, sometimes that ends up just changing people. And while we certainly want them to change back and we're trying to help them to change back, in the meantime, we got to be careful to protect those who are in here. Because we do not want this family to be corrupted by their bad leaven, the leaven of bad doctrine. Look with me in Matthew 16, please. Just step out of Matthew or out of Corinthians. In Matthew 16, Jesus here, he's not talking about the church. The church has actually not even been established at this point. But he does talk about being guarded. When it comes to doctrine and when it comes to teaching. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this in verse 6. In Matthew 16 and in verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, unfortunately, the disciples to whom He was speaking, they actually thought that Jesus was talking about literal leaven. And they thought that He was saying, Don't buy a loaf of bread from the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Well, Jesus spends the next couple of verses kind of clearing all of that up. And after that elaboration, they finally get it, verse 12. Then they understood that He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus said that what those folks were teaching, it was leaven. And He said, you need to monitor that. You need to scrutinize that. You need to refute that. You need to block it out. Because if somebody actually takes hold of what they're saying and what they're teaching, that stuff could spread. And it's going to cause a world of trouble. In fact, once the church was established, you know as well as I do, that that ended up happening. The leaven of these Jewish and very Jewish people. Would you look in Galatians? That's meant for many reasons. That's the reason the Galatian letter had to be written. In Galatians 5, 
The churches in Galatia were being infiltrated by these Judaizers. Here's a bunch of sour grapes, false teachers. And they're trying to bind the law of Moses on top of Christianity. And Paul says, Galatians, I can't even believe that you've bought into this stuff. Galatians 5 verse 7. He says there, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Notice it now. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In fact, what Paul is trying to correct here, and some of the things that he's talking about here, the false doctrine that they've been taught and been put into their minds, some of the Galatians, they actually got upset by that. They got mad at the fact that Paul was speaking the truth to them. And so Paul had to call that out. Galatians 4 verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, all of a sudden, I'm the enemy now? I'm not the one who changed here. You're the one who changed. I'm your image. Just six months ago, you and I were friends. What happened here? I'll tell you what happened here. The leaven of doctrine came in. And it changed all of that. Now I'll say once again, we can't control all of the false doctrine that gets spouted off by people in the world. If your kids go to public school, if you work in a public job, If you watch television, if you get on the internet, then you will in some manner, in some way, you will be exposed to false teaching and false doctrine. There's just, you just can't do anything about that. You're going to be exposed to bad leaven from time to time. And we have to learn to deal with that. You know, there's just a level of false teaching that is out there, and we just have to realize we're not going to be able to get away from it all. But would to God, would to God that it did not come from in here, Right? Would to God that we could trust the people in this room to say and to teach and to live out what is right. Would to God that the very people from this family that I invite into my home, and listen, I don't just invite everybody into my home. I don't just invite random people off the street into my home. If you're sitting in my house, it probably means I think you're a pretty good person. And so if you're in my home, that means I care about what you say. And I trust that what you're saying is going to be true and is going to be right. But listen, I don't care if you are a blood relative of mine. If you are standing for and you are propagating and you are all about spreading false doctrine and false teaching, then you will not, I repeat, you will not be sitting at my dinner table telling my child all about your false beliefs. That just isn't going to happen. Because doctrine is scary whenever it's close. Especially when it's coming from somebody that we can't trust. Beware of the leaven of those who no longer abide in the teaching of Jesus. Their doctrine is corrupt. Finally then, that would lead me to just say a quick word about the leaven of hypocrisy. Look in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, this is Jesus once again speaking about the Pharisees. But he's a little bit more specific this time around. In Luke chapter 12, and in verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to His disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I just tell you that I I believe that hypocrisy is probably the most dangerous leaven of them all. Because when it comes to those first two kinds, when it comes to the leaven of association, or when it comes to doctrine, those are things you can usually see. You can spot it 
When somebody's out living wrong and you say, hey, you invite me to come out and do some wrong activity with you on Friday night. No, I can't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. Not going to do that. Or when somebody's saying things that are false and not true and not in line with the Word of God, I can spot that. I can hear that and I can point that out. But hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is something that is hidden. Hypocrisy hides under the mask. You think about the Pharisees. To the casual observer, to just the random passerby, the Pharisees, well, they look spiritually stellar. They were like religious all-stars to most people. But behind the mask, there was greed, there was bad attitudes, and there was evil hearts. You realize that this very morning, there are unrepentant Christians who have joined themselves to local churches, even local churches who would wear the name of Christ. Local churches just like this one. And from a casual observation, they seem to be very devoted to God. I mean, they got all dressed up. They've come and they're sitting and they're worshiping. They're singing. They're praying. They brought their Bible. They extend a warm handshake. They give a warm hug. But behind the mask, there's immorality. There's profanity. Maybe there's drunkenness. In fact, that is the reason I am persuaded that many Christians just kind of remain disconnected from their brethren. They don't allow other brethren to get too close to them. They don't even place membership with a local congregation. Why? Because they want to be able to maintain their hypocrisy and their double life lest they be exposed. But I want to remind you that hypocrisy, it cannot remain hidden forever. Our God is very good at exposing hypocrites. And He does that in order to protect the purity of His church. Does anybody remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? God exposed their hypocrisy. Why? To keep their leaven out of the church. There comes a point where God's people need to go on the offensive a little bit. And we need to just stand up and say, Hey brother, or hey sister, You know, look, you dress the part and you come to church every Sunday and you know, you talk a big game, you can quote some Bible verses and all that, but listen, I know what you're doing. I know how you're living Monday through Saturday. I I know the kinds of things that you're involved in when you think nobody else is looking. But they are looking. And more importantly, the Lord sees all that's going on there. And the truth of the matter is, God is not impressed by people who live undisciplined lives, but hey, at least they came to church today. God's not impressed with that. Look at 1 John chapter 2, one final passage today. In 1 John chapter 2, John just pulls off the mask of the hypocrite. In 1 John chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 4. In 1 John 2 and verse 4, listen to this. See if this sounds like a hypocrite. Whoever says, I know him. You just hear it. Yeah, I know the Lord. Oh, yeah, I know all about the Lord. I tell you all about Him. I know Him, but that person does not keep His commandments. That person is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. I believe we do a disservice to the unfaithful. And even worse, we endanger the faithful whenever we applaud style and looks over substance. Hypocrisy has a leavening effect on others. You just ask Peter. 
when Peter played the hypocrite in Galatians chapter 2, what ended up happening there? Barnabas and the others who were around him, they also fell into that hypocrisy. The church is not a group of people who just go around and say we're Christians. The church is people who are Christians. And we walk in the same manner in which He walked. Have you maybe ever heard somebody say once before, I ain't going to church down there. Ain't no way I'm going to church down there. They're all a bunch of hypocrites down there. I've heard that before and maybe you have as well. First of all, what I always want to say to that, first of all, you need to get yourself right with the Lord before you ever start worrying about anybody else. Second of all, you're not as right about that business of everybody down there is a bunch of... You're not nearly as right about that as you think you are. But thirdly, unfortunately, there probably is some truth to that statement. There probably are some hypocrites down there. And we need to recognize that. And we need to simply have the courage and the desire to call that out and to root it out before it leavens, before it expands and it grows and it creates problems for the dough. Because again, all this stuff, it's not just about saving that lost sheep. It's also about protecting the sheep that are still in the fold. Now I'll say again... I don't expect that anybody this morning is going to leave here and is going to tell me, oh, Brother Josh, mm, that was my favorite sermon of all time. Man, I can't wait to listen to that again on the podcast. I don't think anybody's going to give me a high five and say, oh, man, just keep it up. That's awesome. Just do it again. No. This is hard and it is difficult stuff. In fact, in some ways, preaching on it is actually the easy part. It's the putting it into practice stuff That's when it's really hard. When someone that we know, when someone that we love, has chosen to no longer live a disciplined life for the Lord, and they've chosen to go back into the far country of sin, despite our pleas and our prayers and our admonitions, that alone is painful enough. But to recognize that God's way of saving them and bringing them back that that has to involve a separation from them, putting some space in the relationship, that there has to be a change in how we act, we have to modify our behavior in that relationship, that is almost more than we can bear. But bear it we must. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I'm going to tell you this, I can't speak for everybody else here, but I will not stand in judgment and lose my soul over somebody else's sin. I will not. If this is something you struggle with, the idea of having to do the kinds of things, the separation and the things that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5 with a wayward brother or sister, you struggle with this, I pray for you. I do. I pray for you. I pray that you find the strength that you need so that you can apply and live out and do God's will. That is what He has called His people to do. Perhaps there's someone here this morning who has distanced themselves from God. It's not that God's pulled away from you. No, 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 no. You have pulled yourself away from the Lord. We want you to know this morning that we, just as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, we want your spirit to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And we don't want to save your soul by having to break our relationship with you now. No. We want to help defeat that by working on that before that ever has to even happen. 
We want to encourage you to get your life right with God now. While there's time, we want to help you to repent. We want to help you to serve the Lord in a better way. We want to help you to help us and all of us walk together to heaven so that we can be with the Lord forever. We can help you this morning to come back to the Lord. Or maybe this morning there's somebody here who's away from God because you never come to Him in the first place. And we're encouraging and pleading with you as well to render your obedience to the gospel, be buried with Christ in baptism. Let us assist you in that. Whatever your need may be, you just need to make that known. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.